0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to Bomb City Locker Room Talk Podcast. You're listening to episode 123. In the previous episode, we explored the inner workings of the Johnny Frank Garrett case, shedding light on the unjust verdicts that resulted in Garrett's conviction. As we approach the concluding segment of Emerald and Peril Part 3, we will intensify our exploration of the remaining intricacies of the case and venture into the alleged curse that Johnny Frank Garrett is said to have cast upon those who bore responsibility for his tragic demise. In 2016, a horror film based on Johnny Frank Garrett's case was produced titled Last Word, not to be confused with the 2008 documentary also named The Last Word. The central premise of the movie revolves around Garrett's execution and the alleged letter he wrote in which he placed a curse on those responsible for his conviction and death. This eerie letter was briefly mentioned in Jesse Quackenbush's documentary. After Johnny Frank Garrett's execution, a significant number of individuals connected to the case and their loved ones experienced untimely deaths due to various causes such as car accidents, cancer, and suicide. A series of unfortunate events struck several individuals connected to Johnny Frank Garrett's conviction in the years following the trial. Here are a list of unfortunate events connected to the curse. Juror Novella Summer suffered a fatal accident falling down a flight of stairs and eventually succumbing to complications from the fall. Tragedy struck another juror, Nathan Shackelford, and his daughter lost her life in a tragic accident, a gunshot wound to the head. Later, his sister tragically died in a collision with a drunk driver. Garrett's trial attorney, Bill Coley, has passed away to pancreatic cancer. Garrett's initial appellate lawyer, Bruce Sadler, and the post-conviction trial, Judge Sam Kaisler, were both afflicted from a form of leukemia. Judge Kayser lost his life After initially overcoming the disease, what remains inexplicable is the disappearance of his healthy bone marrow connected for potential future need. Jimmy Don Boynston's life was claimed by leukemia. Officer Walt Yeager also faced leukemia and lost his battle. NBC reporter Kathy Jones met an untimely end in an airplane crash while on an assignment in Oklahoma. Medical examiner Ralph Erdman faced serious convictions for falsifying autopsy reports, leading to his medical license being revoked and future imprisonment. His wife also tragically succumbed to pancreatic cancer. Eugene Heavy Duty Patterson was discovered dead in his vehicle, with the cause of death remaining undetermined. Watley, a jailhouse informant who provided testimony against Garrett in exchange for a reduced sentence, resorted to taking his own life. Carol Moore, Garrett's schoolteacher, who testified during the trial, tragically took her own life as well. District Attorney Danny Hill took his own life, and heartbreakingly, his daughter followed suit a few years later. Jeff Blackburn, one of Garrett's many appellate attorneys, faced the devastating loss of his wife, who tragically took her own life. His son experienced a dreadful incident when he was accidentally locked inside of a hot car in Houston, resulting in permanent brain damage. The former Texas Governor Ann Richards encountered cancer twice and ultimately succumbed to the cancer. Certainly, the notion of a curse adds a captivating dimension to the story, inviting various interpretations and beliefs. Now... Let's refocus on the scrutiny of the case that ultimately led to Johnny Frank Garrett's unjust conviction. Pope John Paul II penned a heartfelt letter to then-Governor of Texas Ann Richards, advocating for clemency on behalf of Johnny Frank Garrett. In the letter, he expressed gratitude for the potential act of mercy, stating, The Holy Father praises your consideration, as clemency in this case would serve as a powerful testament to the values of nonviolence, mutual respect, and the love within society. The nuns at St. Francis' convent also joined their voices, in a plea to the governor, earnestly requesting clemency for Johnny Frank Garrett. In response to these appeals, Governor Ann Richards was quoted as saying, In this case, I had some reservations. But considering the petitions from the sisters, who essentially constituted the victim's only family, granting his 30-day delay felt like the morally right course of action. Governor Ann Richards intervened, granting Johnny Frank Garrett a 30-day stay of execution to allow for a comprehensive review of his case by the Texas Board of Pardons and Parole. This was an exceptionally rare occurrence, as the last such reprieve had been granted in 1987. Up to that point, the board had extended clemency to only 137 individuals over the past 55 years. During the hearing, Johnny Frank Garrett's attorney, Warren Clark, made a compelling case for clemency by delving into Garrett's harrowing upbringing. Evidence presented included a video-recorded interview with Johnny Frank Garrett, in which he discussed disturbing aspects of his childhood, often referring to himself in the third person. Psychiatrist Dorothy Lewis testified that Garrett would enter a disassociative state when recounting his traumatic childhood experiences. Revealing that he had been subjected to sexual abuse and torture as a child, Lewis stated, It's a textbook example of what happens when relentless and unbearable abuse occurs in early life. Although controversial, Dorothy Lewis was considered an authority in Disassociative Identity Disorder, a condition typically rooted in severe early childhood trauma. Johnny Frank Garrett's defense team aimed not to establish his innocence before the board but to demonstrate that he suffered from what they described as a profoundly fractured personality. Bishop Leroy Matheson made considerable efforts to advocate for Johnny's case, having known Donnie for many years and witnessed what he described as highly dysfunctional family life. A total of 18 Texan bishops, along with the leadership at St. Francis Convent and even Pope John II himself supported Johnny Frank Garrett's appeal for clemency. After hours of testimony, the board deliberated for approximately half an hour before reaching in a unanimous 17-0 vote in favor of granting Johnny Frank Garrett a reprieve. However, one member abstained from the vote. District Attorney Danny Hill expressed concerns about Johnny Frank Garrett's threat to public safety, emphasizing that individuals on death row, including Garrett, had been involved in multiple violent altercations. Garrett had even received a five-year sentence for stabbing another inmate. Hill acknowledged Garrett's challenging upbringing, but asserted that it could not excuse his actions. At this point, Johnny Frank Garrett had exhausted all available avenues of appeal, and his only hope for survival rested with potential Supreme Court intervention. On the same day the parole board denied Garrett's clemency, a press conference took place at St. Matthew's Catholic Church in Arlington. Johnny Frank Garrett's half-sister and nephew, Joseph, who resided in Switzerland, expressed their opposition to his impending execution. Joseph believed that executing Garrett Joseph believed that executing Garrett would be akin to perpetuating an act of murder. The press conference was led by Texas Bishop Joseph Delaney, who, along with other anti-death penalty advocates, emphasized the official position of the church on capital punishment. He stressed the church's strong opposition to the state taking human life, asserting that it merely perpetuated violence. During the press conference, Ken Robinson shared a personal story that humanized the plea for clemency. Robinson's son had been convicted of murdering five people and was currently on death row. He explained that his son had severe mental illness and had received treatment in various hospitals, none of which provided care for more than 30 days. Robinson also pointed out that there were individuals who might not be on death row today if they had received the necessary treatment. On February 10, 1992, an execution warrant was issued and signed by a judge from the 181st District Court scheduling the execution an hour before sunrise on February 11th. In the early hours of Tuesday, February 11th, 28-year-old Johnny Frank Garrett was executed at Lakeland Junction and was pronounced dead at 12.18 a.m. The U.S. Supreme Court had rejected two last-minute stays of execution the day before, and his final appeal was also rejected immediately before his execution. Johnny Frank Garrett's story did not end there. While many in Amarillo may have preferred to bury the story, there were others determined to find meaning in the young man's life and seek vindication for a person who may have been wrongly executed. Johnny Frank Garrett now garners more compassion, support, and death than he ever received during his lifetime. As the 1980s progressed, Ralph Erdman, the pathologist who conducted Sister Tadea Benz's autopsy, had become the primary forensic pathologist in West Texas over a decade. Erdman was responsible for overseeing autopsies across an astonishing 48 counties. However, in 1992, the same year Johnny Frank Garrett was executed, allegations were raised against Erdman, casting doubt on his professional practices. An extensive two-year investigation ensued, during which around 300 of Erdman's autopsies came under scrutiny. In 1994, Ralph Erdman entered a no-contest plea admitting to botching and falsifying autopsies. As a result, he surrendered his medical license and was placed on 10 years of probation, required to complete 200 hours of community service in order to reimburse nearly 17000 in autopsy fees. In some cases, autopsies he claimed to have performed were found to have no signs of ever taking place. The repercussions of Erdman's actions were substantial, with numerous cases spanning over a decade being called into question. Accusations arose that Erdman had conducted autopsies without the knowledge of prosecutors. Subsequently, 43 cases were re-examined, and 12 death row inmates appealed their convictions. By March 1995, one of Erdman's autopsies, which had resulted in a death row conviction, was overturned, when it was revealed that he had provided false testimony about the cause of death. In reality, the victim had died of a heart attack. The death row inmate's conviction and sentence were reversed by the state appeals court, and Erdman faced charges of perjury and evidence tampering. The two-year investigation into Erdman's practices revealed significant issues, as about 100 of the 300 autopsies studied exhibited problems. For example, one case involved a 41 year old level land man found dead in his home. A police officer had casually speculated about the involvement of drugs when the autopsy report initially indicated that the man had died from a cocaine overdose. This assertion deeply angered his family, who insisted that he never used drugs. When a family member reviewed the autopsy findings, they discovered a discrepancy. The report mentioned the spleen as an examined internal organ. Yet the family knew that the man's spleen had been removed years earlier. To resolve the uncertainty, the body was exhumed, but no autopsy inclusion marks were found on it. Another autopsy was conducted, revealing that the man had accidentally, had actually died of a heart attack. Subsequently, a ruling in another case, initially classified as a woman choking on her own vomit, was reassessed. It was determined that she had been smothered by a former lover, leading to a life sentence for the perpetrator and an order to pay $250,000 to the victim's family. In yet another case, Ralph Erdman had managed to misplace the head of a suspected homicide victim. Beyond the ethical concerns of mishandling body parts, the missing head contained critical evidence. The bullets used in the victim's murder. Without this crucial evidence, the suspect had to be released. A decade after the death of a toddler that had always troubled the child's father, further investigation was initiated. Erdman had conducted the original autopsy, and the child's body was exhumed. With the addition of physical evidence, witness statements and hospital photos, the cause of death was reevaluated and changed to strangulation. The boy's mother's former partner was subsequently charged with his murder. Several heart-wrenching cases were linked to Ralph Erdman's professional misconduct, with one of those most significant involving a father wrongly accused of killing his own son. This man endured four months in prison until it was revealed that his son had tragically drowned, debunking Erdman's earlier allegations of homicide. Linda Norton, a former medical examiner from Dallas County, exposed Erdman's practice of conducting what she termed custom-made autopsies, wherein his findings were often tailored to fit a predetermined narrative, often behind the back of law enforcement. Norton went further to assert that some of Erdman's conclusions were egregiously inaccurate. A lawyer in Lubbock who is handling an appeal in a murder case where Erdman was accused of manipulating a toxology report firmly believed there was a collusion between the prosecution and Erdman to secure convictions at any cost a belief he held without a shadow of a doubt. He strongly suspected a cover-up was underway. Mr. Turner, too, noticed signs that many in law enforcement regarded Erdman as eccentric and questioned his competence due to frequent mishandling of evidence and peculiar actions, such as passing organs to individuals. On June 20, 2002, the Supreme Court issued a pivotal ruling declaring that individuals with mental disabilities could no longer receive death sentences. The court argued that such executions violated the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment, marking a shift in the national consensus. This contrasted with the court's 1989 ruling, which allowed the execution of individuals with mental disabilities. In 1989, the court regarded mental retardation as a mitigating factor that juries could consider during sentencing. It's crucial to note that before the 1989 ruling, only Maryland and Georgia had laws against executing individuals with mental disabilities. Between 1989 and 2002 rulings, 16 more states and the federal government had enacted laws prohibiting such executions. Notably, Texas was not among those states. In 2004, Johnny Frank Garrett's family enlisted attorney Jesse Quackenbush's legal services. After 12 years since Johnny Frank Garrett's execution, his mother, Charlotte Cameron, sought post-conviction DNA testing with an order of full immunity for the state in the event of her son's wrongful conviction and execution. Charlotte Cameron made it clear that her sole intention was to exonerate Johnny. It didn't take long for responses to arrive, with letters coming from both the Potter County District Attorney's Office and the City of Amarillo. In these correspondences... Charlotte Cameron faced threats of counterclaims for damages and sanctions if she pursued her claim. In 2005, the Supreme Court issued a ruling that prohibited the execution of individuals who were juveniles under the age of 18 at the time of their crimes. The court found that these executions violated the Eighth Amendment as they constituted cruel and unusual punishment. On February 28, 2005, the day before... Roper v. Simmons' decision, there were 71 individuals on death row for crimes committed as juveniles. These juvenile offenders aged 16 to 17 at the time of their crimes ranged in age from 18 to 43 when Roper's decision was made. They were under death sentences in 12 different states, and their time on death row varied from 6 months to 24 years. Notably, Texas held the largest death row for juvenile offenders with 29 individuals, constituting 41% of the national total of 71 juvenile offenders. In 2008, attorney Jesse Quackenbush released a documentary titled The Last Word about Johnny Frank Garrett's case. The documentary shed light on compelling evidence related to Garrett's conviction. Particularly startling information came from a Cuban man who knew Fernando Flores, the original suspect in the Tadea Benz's murder. Leoncio Rueda was part of a group of Cuban refugees who arrived in the U.S. during the Mario boat and ended up in Amarillo in 1981. He was a friend and roommate of Fernando Flores. By 2003, Leoncio Rueda found himself in a New Mexico prison and a Potter County detective reopened the investigation to to Tadea Benz's murder from 22 years earlier. In March 2004, a DNA analysis of a bloody bedsheet led to a significant discovery. The DNA on the bedsheet was identified as a match to Luencio Rueta, and a murder charge was filed by the Potter County District Attorney's Office on March 24th. He was promptly extradited back to Texas. Leoncio Rueda had been a person of interest in the case since July 1981, and at that time, he and several other Cuban nationals had been interviewed and had provided hair and blood samples. Despite this, law enforcement could not establish a connection between Leoncio Rueda and the rape and murder of Narnie Box Bryson. Once Rueda had been safely extradited back to Amarillo, he was presented with a plea deal. This arraignment entitled Rueda receiving a 45-year sentence with the potential for parole and the added benefit of no additional charges. Rueda accepted the deal and provided a comprehensive confession. The question that emerges is why Potter County extended such a deal in the first place, even though Rueda was known to have resided in Amarillo in 1981 and law enforcement possessed DNA evidence from the crime scene. It remains a puzzling decision. Rueda had previously committed rape and murder in his native country of Cuba before coming to the United States. This decision undoubtedly saved Potter County a significant amount of money by avoiding the expenses associated with the trial. Another intriguing aspect of the deal was the stipulation of no further charges. Did the Potter County District Attorney suspect that other unsolved cases in Amarillo might link to Luencio Rueda? It's worth at least asking. There were other instances of sexual assault in Amarillo during the same year that Narni Box Bryson was raped and murdered. Though they did not involve homicides, it's possible that the county wanted to eliminate the risk of revisiting another rape and murder case from 1981, a crime that had been frequently compared by law enforcement and former District Attorney Danny Hill to that of Narni Box Bryson a case for which a 17-year-old boy had been arrested and eventually executed. There may have been concerns about reevaluating the outcome if DNA evidence were discovered. This raises the question of whether the evidence from Sister Today's crime scenes still exists. A 1981 police report indicated that approximately two weeks after Narni Box Bryson's murder, a 30 year old Luencio Perez Rueda was found prowling around a house not far from Narni's residence. The report suggested his intentions were suspicious, potentially indicating an attempt to enter the house. He also admitted to peering into windows of several houses in the same area. In a later interview for the Last Word documentary, conducted shortly after his extradition, Leoncio Rueda made several noteworthy statements. Initially, he attributed Narnibox Bryson's death to his friend, Fernando Flores. However, when questioned about the murder of Sister Tadea, Rueda asserted that Flores was involved, claiming that Flores had told him about assaulting and beating a nun, leaving her in a severely injured state. While Flores didn't explicitly mention the sexual assault, Rueda implied it. Rueda expressed ignorance about how his friend's attack led to the nun's death. Perhaps the most intriguing part of the interview was when Rueda discussed a white t-shirt found at the crime scene. Rueda claimed ownership of the white t-shirt, asserting it had been a gift from the nuns at the St. Francis Convent, a place he admitted to visiting multiple times. His statement seemed to suggest that Sister Tadea had specifically given him the white t-shirt. It raises the intriguing possibility of whether the nuns were assigned to work, with, work individually with refugees and if Rueda was under Sister Tadea's care. In his account, Rueda also mentioned that the police had shown him a photo of the white t-shirt discovered at the convent's crime scene, and he had identified it as his own. The question arises regarding when the police presented Rueda with a picture of the white t-shirt. Was it during his initial questioning in 1981, or was it when he was arrested for Nani Box Bryson's murder in 2004. If it occurred years after his arrest, it raises the question of why. Johnny Frank Garrett had already been convicted and executed for the crime over a decade earlier. If Rueda was shown the picture post-arrest, why would he admit to owning a t-shirt he seemed to imply was gifted by Sister Tadea? It suggests a possible concern that his DNA might have been found on the white t-shirt, leading to the creation of a cover-up story for its ownership. It would make sense that he shifted blame to Fernando Flores, providing an explanation involving his friend borrowing the t-shirt and committing a crime while wearing it. Jesse Quackenbush's documentary also unveiled more intriguing information Bishop Leroy T. Matheson served as a Bishop of Amarillo for 17 years and had known Johnny for much of his childhood. During the documentary, he shared a potentially significant piece of the puzzle. Some of the sisters had informed the bishop that they knew Johnny quite well and he frequently visited the convent to spend time with the sisters. He mentioned that he admired the pictures and statues in the convent, often picking up objects to examine them. It created the image of a young man who found solace and comfort within the sanctuary of the convent in a place where he was treated kindly. Perhaps the most thought-provoking aspect of the story was when the sisters told Bishop Matheson that Johnny Frank Garrett had assisted them in moving furniture in and out the convent and onto a moving truck. During this process, he had access to the sisters' bedrooms and touched various pieces of the furniture. This occurred shortly before Sister Today's murder. Bishop Leroy Matheson asserted that neither he nor any of the nuns had ever been interviewed regarding Johnny's visit to the convent. When one of Johnny Frank Garrett's lawyers was questioned about their knowledge of these events, it came as no surprise that neither he nor his colleague had discovered this information before the original trial. This crucial information could have been readily uncovered if the defense team had conducted routine interviews. It was also information that could have provided an innocent explanation for why Johnny Frank Garrett's fingerprints were found at the crime scene. Over the years, hair and bite mark evidence have been criticized by many as forms of questionable science. Perhaps it's a bit harsh to label it as junk science, considering it involves physical evidence. However, When one considers that this physical evidence is subject to human examination and interpretation, it becomes evident that there is a significant margin for potential errors. In 2015, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the Innocence Project, and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers collaborated on a review of microscopic hair comparison analysis. This review revealed that decades of forensic hair analysis conducted before 1999 which had been presented as evidence in criminal trials, were fundamentally flawed. In fact, at least 90% of trial transcripts analyzed by the FBI were found to contain inaccurate statements. Peyton Newfield, the co-director of the Innocence Project, stated, "...these findings confirmed that FBI microscopic hair analysis committed widespread systematic errors, grossly exaggerated the significance of their findings." with devastating consequences for numerous criminal cases. He also commended the FBI and DOJ for acknowledging these errors and notifying many of those adversely affected. This grave miscarriage of justice calls for a thorough investigation to understand how it started nearly four decades ago and why it took so long to come to light. By 2015, the review had scrutinized approximately 500 cases, with likely thousands more still awaiting review. Among those 500 cases, 35 were death penalty cases, and 33 of them were found to contain errors. Shockingly, at the time of these findings, nine of the prisoners had already been executed. Since 1999, the FBI has restricted its use of hair evidence, mitochondrial, and microscopic analysis. On March 28, 2017, in Moore versus Texas, the Supreme Court invalidated Texas' standard for assessing intellectual disability in death penalty cases. The court emphasized that while states have discretion in enforcing the constitutional probation against applying the death penalty to individuals with intellectual disabilities, this discretion is not unlimited when determining intellectual disability. Texas had adopted criteria that critics and mental advocates argued perpetuated stereotypes and had no foundation in medical literature. For instance, the fact finder had to consider whether people who knew the person during childhood, such as family, friends, teachers, employers, and authorities, thought the individual was mentally disabled. Other factors included whether the person could formulate plans respond to external stimuli rationally, answer questions coherently, and protect their interests. The Supreme Court deemed this approach unscientific and unsupported by any recognized sources, either medical or judicial. Two years later, in 2019, an article from the Texas Tribune highlighted that the state of Texas still lacked legislation addressing intellectual disability and the death penalty. In conclusion, the following list outlines some of the questionable aspects and practices in this case. Number one, in 1981, Amarillo law enforcement faced pressure to rapidly solve serious crimes and gain positive public opinion, aiming to establish a full time homicide squad in the city. Number two, questions arose why it took over a week for a patrolman to remember seeing Johnny Frank Garrett fleeing from the convent on the night of Sister Tadea's murder. Number three. The circumstances surrounding the police's initial interaction with Garrett, who was suspected of prowling and chased to his home, raised doubts about why he was allowed to go inside and whether the police could have further questioned him, given his suspicious actions. Number four. The crime scene photos displayed in The Last Word documentary revealed details such as blood droplets on the convent floor and a blood smear on the interior of the first floor fire door exit. These details seem to conflict with the prosecution's version of events regarding the killer's exit route through the broken recreation room window. Number five. Why did Luencio Rueda attempt to connect his friend to the rape and murder of Sister Today in the first place? Is it peculiar that instead of disavowing any knowledge of the case, he vividly recounts a memory from 25 years earlier when his friend implicated himself in the crime? Equally intriguing is his clear recollection of a plain white t-shirt that he owned a quarter of a century ago as Johnny Frank Garrett's claim that his palm and fingerprints were left at the crime scene on Sister Today's bed. It is worth noting that Garrett's assertion that his fingerprints must have been left behind as he reached for the crucifix over her bed was disputed. He was quoted as saying that there was no crucifix hanging above Sister Today's bed, Yet the last war documentary clearly shows a large crucifix positioned beside Sister Tadea's bed. This suggests that Garrett's description of placing his left palm print on the headboard could be accurate, and if he held onto it with his left hand while reaching for the crucifix with his right. Number six, regarding the forged steak knife discovered in the driveway, it matched others found at Garrett's home, although no fingerprints were taken from the knife itself. It raises questions about whether a knife was indeed missing from the Garretts' home, as the detail was not mentioned. Number seven, the shoe impressions obtained from under the broken recreation room window did not match any of Johnny Frank Garrett's shoes. The imprints corresponded to a men's United States size 11, leaving us to wonder about Garrett's shoe size. Additionally, none of his shoes exhibited the same shred pattern as a shoe print found at the crime scene, nor were there glass fragments embedded in his shoes. Number eight. When examining the photos of Johnny Frank Garrett's home taken by the police, it appeared neither clean nor well kept. He had at least two dogs, and his clothing was covered in pet hair when inspected. This absence of pet hair at the Sister Today's crime scene seemed improbable. Garrett's clothing bore no blood when tested by the FBI and there were no pet hairs or fibers from his home detected in the samples collected at the crime scene. Number nine, the wording of Johnny Frank Garrett's alleged confession raises questions and concerns. In the confession, he stated, I heard that the nuns kept nice stereos in their rooms. This appears problematic, since Garrett had been inside the nuns' rooms on different occasions while assisting with furniture removal. He would have direct knowledge of what was present in their bedrooms without needing to hear about it. This seems to cast doubt on the authenticity of the confession. In a similar vein, Garrett was known to have an affinity for religious artifacts at the convent. His account for reaching for a crucifix he intended to steal before being frightened off by a noise seems plausible. It's plausible to believe that Garrett, who had visited the convent numerous times and was likely aware that the nuns congregated while having lunch, had an opportunity to access the bedrooms. These nine details raise numerous questions and opinions on whether Johnny Frank Garrett was guilty or innocent are likely to be divided. I thought we had separation of church and state. I'm not sure the governor knows that. I think that we had a death penalty in Texas specifically for people just like Johnny Frank Garrett. Garrett's stay of execution from the governor was for 30 days, and unless the Board of Pardons and Paroles decides otherwise today, the new execution date is less than a week away. Garrett's attorney says his client is insane and should not be put to death. He does not believe the lethal injection will kill him. He believes that a dead end of his will prevent the poison from killing him. The case has drawn attention because of the Catholic Church's tireless efforts to try to save the life of a man who brutally killed one of their own. Sister Tadia Benz was raped and murdered inside the St. Francis convent in Amarillo. Catholic Church leaders, including the Pope, see the case as a test of their conviction that the death penalty is wrong. We need to bring the voice of religion and, and moral persuasion to bear on these cases. It is not just a matter of the legal system. As we wrap up our local true crime series, Amarillo in Peril, be sure to stay on the lookout for more Amarillo true crime podcasts coming your way soon from Bomb City Locker Room Talk Podcast. Until we meet again.